VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is the briefing room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Brian Christopher. He's a writer, reviewer, and self-proclaimed well-meaning oaf, <laughs> whose work you've seen at Room Org, Daily Dead, and Cinepunks. Welcome to the show, Brian. Good to be here. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't really think of a better way to describe myself. Uh, I think I pretty <laughs> much nailed it. So yeah, that's. I'm glad it's sticking. <laughs> well, I do. I do have a question. Are you the evil doppelganger? Or is Taylor Hicks the evil doppelganger? Oh, man. Like, why do you have to come out swinging like that? That's not nice. All right. So let me get this out of the way. So I'll just – I'll put this out there. Never make your social media handle based off of spite because, like, it's just going to keep haunting you forever. Uh, uh -huh. it, it basically comes off of, like, there was a course of, I don't know, year and a half, two years where – Someone who shall remain nameless was very popular because of American Idol. And over the course of that two years, I got told I looked like him at least a half dozen times by like separate people. It wasn't like the same, like two or three people. It was like, had to have been at least like six separate times, which, you know, isn't that many. But when you're being told you look like Taylor Hicks, it sticks in your head and it kind of like, it's just, it's, uh, you know, it's scarring, which is fitting for, for this podcast. <laughs> Wait, okay. You look, okay. I looked up Taylor Hicks because I had no idea who he was. He also looks like Paul Hollywood from the Great British Baking Show. Stop it. Stop it. No. So can, you be, can you be the evil Paul Hollywood too? I'm going to start it. I'm going to start a rumor. I love that you said this, Mary Beth, because I was going to say it Joe, too. Joe, yes. Lip, Joe Lipset already gave me that kick to the nuts. So that's... Oh <laughs> thanks joe well it was good stopping by i'm gonna head out everybody <laughs> briefest interview ever you came on the show and we're in, we submitted you to cyberbullying as soon as the show started <laughs> <laughs> 
Welcome to Scarred for Life, where we bully our bully our um our Great guests. to be here. You're gonna like ride a, a dragon and, and chase us because of the the cyberbullying. Oh yeah, I, I hope you have your dumpsters picked out because you're done for. <laughs> Okay, uh, so let's bring it back to out. crappy club for jerks is what this is. <laughs> okay, oh let's let's bring this back to before anyone ever knew of uh, Taylor Hicks and your 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 um, doppelganger looks to him. Let's take you back to the very beginning. How did you get introduced to horror? Uh, my mom. It's pretty much as simple okay. as that. She's uh, she's always been a fan of horror, and it's kind of one of those things where I couldn't tell you like the first movie I ever saw because it was just always on when I was a kid. So it's just kind of one of those things that's permeated my consciousness ever since I can remember. I can think back to like the the earliest memories I have of it, but I you know I can't say it was like this was the first one I saw. Um, but the, the earliest mm. memories are like. Friday the 13th marathons on USA. Like I would always look mm. forward to, you know, when, when an actual Friday the 13th would land because I knew that's when USA was going to run those movies. There was also an element of my parents were so the, the the way they worded it was like they didn't want to shield me from stuff like they didn't want to be overprotective mm. parents uh as i've gotten older i'm starting to think that was a bullshit cover for like we want to watch the things we want to watch and if you're going to have to be here then we'll just say that you know we're expanding your horizons so that included movies like like one of the earliest memories i have is the movie Hellraiser. So this has oh, to go wow. back to like, th this is at least something that was on a TV screen that I was in the room as early as like four or five years old. Oh my God. Which is especially interesting considering that like it is now still my favorite movie of all time. So I don't know if it just like imprinted itself on me at a young age. Like we always talk about how like usually it's that person's first foray into horror that always kind of like sticks with them and and usually stays as at least one of their favorite movies. But this one, <laughs> like there's no way I'm understanding what's going on in that movie as a four or five yeah. year old. But it's one that has intrigued me ever since I saw it. Yeah. Like what do you even think watching that as a four, to, a four or five year old? <laughs> like um probably like variations of wow or like <laughs> or just kind of a lot going or on stunned silence yeah yeah that's fair you know i i very clearly don't have memories of like all of the you know sexual themes of the movie it's mainly like oh wow that guy's got pins coming out of his head that's terrifying mm -hmm. but i'm also i want to see more and i definitely have <laughs> <laughs> Wow. They have they have such sites to show you and you have They do. Sites. The the sites tend to be diminishing returns after the fourth one, but yeah, there's there's a lot of sites. <laughs> I have to watch the rest of those. No movies. you don't. No you don't. <laughs> okay. See 1 through 4, Psych. call it a day and just pretend the other ones don't exist cuz that's what I've decided to okay. do. Uh, I mean, you know, they 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 get uh, pretty bad from what I've heard from from Joe. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I guess, you know, Joe um, calling me Paul Hollywood was probably just, even if it was like subconscious revenge for the fact that uh, we had him 
and um, uh, Annie Rose Malamet watched the entirety of the franchise for a retrospective we did for uh, <laughs> for Daily Dead for uh, for Corpse Club. So yeah, I, I don't think oh, wow. I'm going to be getting Christmas cards from either of those people anytime in the near future. <laughs> it is there is a dip in quality. Like you know, the first two are are fantastic. They're like for me the best horror has to offer. Three is ridiculous and stupid, but still entertaining. Four is just so incredibly insane that I can't help but respect it. And then after that, it's really just varying degrees of eh. Yeah, I don't really want to spend time watching a horror movie that's called eh. You know what I mean? <laughs> or any movie that's just I don't blame you. Eh. So you loved Hellraiser, but what were a few of your other horror favorites besides Hellraiser? Oh, boy. Uh, so in terms of like some of the uh, um, gateway horror and – Sorry about the pun, uh, but The Gate is a huge one for me. That was one that I watched and rewatched a lot as a kid. And that was one that um, definitely left an impression in terms of like, that is a creepy movie. It Even is. Going back mm-hmm. to it as an adult, I remember it, like there was probably about a 20, 25 year gap between when I saw it as a kid and when I came back to it as an adult. And I'm like, all right, brace yourself for, you know, this probably isn't going to be what you remembered. And it a hundred percent was, you know, it, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely a kid's movie, but it's, it's not really pulling punches in terms of putting those kids in danger. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a good one and it's really creepy and atmospheric and it's just, it's a lot of, I don't know if fun's the right word, but it's definitely, you know, something that, uh, hold your attention, whether or not you're eight or 38. Yeah. Cause we watched it for the podcast and I had never seen it before. I hadn't either. And I, you know, I was like, okay, it'll probably be fun, but I did not realize how creepy it was going to be. Like for me as an adult, I was like, this is not a, ch- this is not a children's movie. Like there are children getting very mm-hmm. hurt <laughs> in this a movie. A man's face gets like pushed oh. in and dirty dishwater pours uh, is, out of it. It yeah. is so no, That was one that, so that gave me some nightmares. Just that idea. Cause they're, they're also toying with that idea of like, not just any man, this is like the kid's dad or who they think is his dad. The dad. Yeah. So just yeah. that just kind of whiplash turn from we're okay to, Oh God, we're not Okay is just so rattling. Yeah, it really is. So besides The Gate, uh, did you have any other uh, favorites from that time period from when you were a kid? Oh, I was a bit of a basic fella, uh, especially because my mom was really into 80s stuff. Uh, so pretty much all of the, the, the classic 80s stuff, Nightmare on Elm Street. Gotcha. You know, the alien movies. Yeah, so like it, a lot of the stuff when I was a kid was the stuff that was just like super readily available and a lot of the more mainstream stuff. Okay. So transitioning from being a kid to being an adult, what what do you what do you think draws you to the genre or to horror now as an adult? Oh, I think it's just kind of the way my interaction with it has evolved um, and okay. turned into something that was as a kid up through probably my mid twenties. My enjoyment of horror was, I think, uh, like at a very superficial level or at least a very like face value level. Um, I liked it because it had a lot of really cool visuals and I liked, mm-hmm. you know, I liked gore and basically I was like the guy that you would probably find in like a horror Reddit thread or like, um, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the guys that like a, a lot of the comment sections for a lot of like the more popular websites. Like, uh, I wasn't ever. I don't think, uh, like creepy or problematic. Um, <laughs> but, um, I also wasn't really 
too concerned with what it all meant uh, okay. in terms of in terms of how I digested horror. It was just it was cool. Um, <laughs> you know what I like is how my appreciation of it has evolved as I've gotten older. Kind of seeing what horror mm-hmm. can be beyond that kind of narrow sliver of like eighty slasher and you know just kind of like as a as an aesthetic. It's just become a lot more – in a lot of ways, it's become a lot more difficult because, you know, horror is looking at things that are more difficult and things that people don't often want to look at. Um, but it's also made it a lot richer of an experience. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you get scared as a kid at these movies, but do you ever experience that kind of fear now? I know that a lot of the time with people, <laughs> including Terry and I, it's, you know – it's it's you get jaded after a while so do you ever still get that childhood fear yeah there's definitely a sense of like you know you get you build up that tolerance over the years and i think that's definitely something that i've gotten um you know i think that usually movies are more going to disturb me or mm-hmm. kind of rattle me then they're gonna kind of have that visceral fear yeah now that said i'm still like a sucker for a jump scare like it's hell yeah i'm the guy who like if i'm watching a movie in my office and i've got headphones on and like i know something's coming like i'll start kind of drifting the headphones above my head oh yes because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like usually like the visuals aren't what get me for the jump scare it's that stinger and the loud noise yeah uh, which is why it always pisses me off when it's like a cat or something cheap like that now that said, I do remember that the last experience I had where I was just like scared down to my bones, like that little kid scared that I hadn't felt mm-hmm. in a long time was actually from a TV show. It was from, um, I don't know if either of you have seen on Netflix. Uh, it only lasted a season, but it's called Marianne. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. I didn't finish it, but I've heard such good things about it. So there's the scene where she's uh the the main character is and to give a little bit of context it's um kind of this this uh writer is has basically taken this kind of witch demon entity from her childhood as a kind of a catharsis or to kind of like trap the demon unknowingly has become an author and written a bunch of stories about uh that kind of based on her experience with it uh through a fictional lens uh but as an adult it's kind of coming back for her and it wants to wreak havoc. And so there's this sequence where she's with her parents and the house alarm starts going off. And it's kind of that, like, I don't know if you've ever had like a house alarm system where like, if it goes off, you can actually like, you'll get a phone call from the company and they'll ask, Mm -hmm. are you okay? And all that stuff. And so she, she gets one of those calls and it's one of those things where you start to realize like, I don't think it's actually the security company on the other end of that line. And the way they reveal that to be the case is one of those things where it's like, I don't remember the last time I actually, not from a jump scare, but just from just feeling so deeply terrified on a, just kind of like uh, an elemental level, I had to stop. Like I actually had to take a break and go like take a breath, turn a light on. And it was kind of one of those things where it was like, oh, that's what that feels like. And so it was like, it was both horrible and wonderful at the same time. Wow. Yeah. I really need to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. Just, you know, with the, the caveat that um, 
it ends on something of a cliffhanger and it's not going to get resolved because Netflix doesn't like to keep good shows going. But it's also yeah. like I would say it it wraps up enough that it's at least a pretty satisfying you know story, like a season of story. Cool. What what would you say are your favorite movie or favorite horror movies as an adult? Uh, so uh, obviously Hellraiser, like I said, mm-hmm. I'm also a really big fan of Phantasm. Oh, OK. Boy. 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 (laughs) And that's one of those movies that it's it's hard for me to describe just because, A, it's one of those movies that are just like – it's so – like surreal and there's so much dream logic. Uh, And it's also one that I think for a lot of people just kind of comes across as low budget B-movie schlock. Like there are some people Mm -hmm. who watch it because they like to kind of laugh along with it. But it's one that resonates with me at a much deeper level. And it's kind of one of the first movies that introduced me to the idea that horror can be more than face value. Oh, And I actually always, I've told this story a a couple of times, but it's one of those things where I, I credit a faculty of horror with kind of opening those Mm. doors to me because they did an episode on phantasm, you know, and they kind of just talked about all of the, the, the themes about like, you know, male teenage adolescence and uh, kind of fear of abandonment and um, all these things that as they're ticking them off, I'm like, oh yeah, I grew up like uh, I was a a single parent household. It was just me and my dad from the time I was like six on. Uh, And I was like low key, always kind of terrified as I think a lot of kids of single parents are like, you don't necessarily know to articulate it, but like, yeah. there's always that like, well, what if something happens to this person? Like, what if they leave me either of their own accord or mm. for, you know, circumstances yeah. outside of their, uh, outside of their control and kind of connecting those dots with why I liked Phantasm so much is kind of what really just kind of blew the gates open for me and looking at horror in a different way. Wow. And so it's, it's a movie that I appreciate for, for kind of, being that catalyst for me. It's also just like, it's just a creepy movie. It's got a really great soundtrack. Uh, Angus Scrim does so much with like three lines of dialogue. Right? (laughs) Wild. Uh, And I also just love kind of the whole like independent guerrilla style of filming that they did. Like this was a movie that um, Don Coscarelli's parents paid I think his parents like funded most of it. Uh, they shot on weekends, like whenever they could get people together. Um, they kept people plied with like Dos Equis beer the whole time just to kind of keep everybody in good spirits. Uh, and it's just one of those things that like happened to come together as this really affecting horror movie. I need to give it another shot. I remember trying to watch it, I think, during one of the like drive in things when they were, I think he did, did it once. And I just, I had a hard time getting into it. I need to, I bought the like, the big set of it so i have all <laughs> what like four. i'm just laughing at you because you're like i can't get into it yeah. but i also bought the entire set you don't know you don't know if it's not going to be available what if you end up finding out that you love it and then you can't get the physical media ever again don't look i have regretted that multiple times in my life i don't need <laughs> that has happened to me a couple of times that is horror fandom in a nutshell though it's like eh, i don't it really, really like this movie i own everyone in the franchise but uh-huh i mean it's like the, the jason one i'm not a huge friday the 13th fan but i bought that fucking blu-ray set because <laughs> you, you did I, who knows you might need it at some point in your life I, you know i liked midsummer but like not was not obsessed with it and i still spent 50 dollars in that fucking a24 oh, blu-ray yeah. release we're not gonna so. talk about that that, that purchase <laughs> um <laughs> okay so transitioning like away from this 
kind of semi-depressing, but also not topic, to um, great stuff. Can you tell us what you do at Daily Dead? Yes. So um, I've got a couple of recurring columns on there uh, that I do. Uh, the first one that I started is called Catalog from the Beyond. Uh, it's a fairly simple premise. It's, you know, I, I take a horror icon, either actor or director, you know, someone well-known, uh, and just take a look at some of their maybe lesser-known stuff. Uh, so... Like, I still remember the first thing I ever did for Daily Dead was I did David Cronenberg, but I did um, History of Violence. Oh. oh I always cool. forget that he directed that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually my favorite Cronenberg movie. Like, I absolutely nice. adore that movie, partially because I'm just a big Viggo Mortensen fan. I love Maria Bello, but I just – it's another one that's hard to describe because it's like – it's this slice of Americana just like – jammed against the brick wall of like the repercussions of violence and those themes that kind of permeate David Cronenberg movies. Mm. And it's just one that, uh, yeah, I just like, it's, it's such a small story. And I think I really like small stories, especially small stories that like hint at bigger stuff. So like, it's this little family story, but there's these connections to like organized crime and things like that. But it's also, it's just so like very focused. So that was the first one I ever did for Daily Dead, and uh, I've been doing that for, uh, I think I started in 2016, so this will be my fifth year doing that. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. it's uh, I I don't have the output that like uh, uh, Scott Drebbit, who does drive-in dust-offs, like he does that shit once a week. I do it once a month, and even that is like, I don't get how he does it. He's he's a robot. He's a machine. Um, And they're all good, too. Like, like, it takes me – a lot of effort to put out one of these a month and have something that I think is like readable. He's just like, yeah, every Saturday. Fuck you. <laughs> Love you, Scott. Wow. What's, like what that is wild. Like once a week yeah. that that's insane. So yeah, I've been doing that for five years, but like uh, my 50th one is coming up like next month. So it's not like Dang. I'm just like, you know, firing out like a bunch of these, you know, a month or anything like that. That's still a lot. That's a long time to keep a, a a column going. That's that's something to be proud of. Thank you. Yeah, admittedly, I did need to take a little bit of a, a pandemic break in the second half of 2020 just because I was juggling a few different things and there was just only so much like brain bandwidth. So something had to go for a little while and that was the one I took I don't a break understand on. that at all. I don't know why <laughs> the pandemic would, would cause that to happen. Yeah, we have all this free time now. Shouldn't we be so much more productive? <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> So it's so true. Uh, so yeah, I've got I've been doing that. Um, and one of the other things that uh, I'm I'm actually really proud of uh, the the other column that I started. I guess this will be about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, it's called "Let's Scare Brian to Death." One of the things that you know I, I admit to, and, and we talked about this earlier, is that like I had a very kind of narrow focus in terms of the horror movies that I watched as a kid and up through my my mm-hmm. early to mid twenties, and so. I love horror, but my my horror education isn't what it could be. And so I started this column basically to get like really cool people who know about horror to introduce me to new horror movies. Um, and so it's an interview with uh, uh, with people who have you know written in horror. Some uh, I've gotten talked to some directors. I've talked to uh, some actors. The only criteria for this interview is that. Uh, the movie we talk about has to be one I haven't seen before, which is usually pretty easy. Like if you toss me a list of three to five movies, I'm probably – there's at least one in there that I'm not going to have seen. This has come together and 
I just really, really like the opportunity this has given me to talk to really cool people. Like the, the first one I ever did was with, uh, Andrea Subasati from Faculty of Horror mm. and from Room Work. Mm-hmm. Uh, she introduced me to, uh, The Evil Within, uh, that, uh, the movie from, I think like 2017, uh, that oh. was made by, uh, that, that guy from, I think he was like from the Hearst family or something like that, had a lot of mental health issues, but he put like $5 million of his own money into making like this passion project that is such a, like a glorious hot mess that is, (laughs) you can't call it bad. It's super rough around the edges and it goes into some really weird territory. But considering it was made by a guy who's never made a movie before, it is a very interesting movie. And so it's also one that I never would have bothered seeing like on my own. So that's the kind of thing. And and I've just had, I've seen such great movies through this and talked to such great people. Um, it's something that I really enjoy doing and, and I'm glad I've gotten the opportunity to do it. That's rad. That's awesome. And uh, I guess like as a, a little bit of a hint, people who <laughs> like this podcast and, and like Terry and Mary Beth, keep an eye out for some of their voices that might be coming up <laughs> in the very near future. Hmm. Very excited. Me too. Um, okay. So Brian, what movie are we talking about today? We are talking 1984's The Never Ending Story. The Never Ending Story. Gang, if we're going to sing off key, we at least need to be on the same lines. I know. You, you think we would have planned that out a little bit better. No. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> just We're just going to sing that whole song like four times. That's the entire episode. <laughs> just get the episode like pulled down for copyright strikes. It's fine. <laughs> Um, okay, so for those of you who have never seen The NeverEnding Story, um, the film is about Bastion, a shy, outcast bibliophile who lives with his widowed father and is tormented by bullies each morning who throw him into a fucking dumpster. Mm. Who does that? On one occasion, he escapes into a bookshop where the old proprietor reveals an ancient story book to him, which he is warned can be dangerous. Shortly after he borrows the book and begins to read it in the school attic he is drawn to into the mythical land of fantasia which desperately needs a hero to save it from destruction turn around it's a never-ending story (laughs) okay so (laughs) i'm just trying to think of like a random part of that song that i can throw into the mix Okay, to be honest, those are like literally the only lyrics I know. It's yeah. like that turnaround part and the never ending story part. I don't I hum this music when I watched this last night again for the first time in who knows how many years, but like I don't know the lyrics. So, uh, you know, the lyrics are gobbledygook anyway. Like you you listen to that song because it has a really catchy melody and the, you know, the uh the singing is really good, but who cares about the words other than turnaround and never ending story? At one point, they sing about rainbows, like, whatever. I mean, this is Um, sort of like, I mean, that's pretty par for the course for a lot of 80s music. No offense to 80s music fans, but... No, that's true. (laughs) Um, Anyway, okay, Brian, tell us your horror story about this. How old were you? What terrified you? give us give us the story. So I will say this is another one that I couldn't tell you the first time I saw it because it's just... It's my, this is my childhood in a nutshell. And mm. I've got a very conflicted, I wouldn't even say it's conflicted, but it's like there's a very kind of, I don't know, dualistic relationship with this movie because it is one that like I have adored with my whole heart ever since I was very young, but mm-hmm. also as a young kid, absolutely dreaded watching it because there are such 
scarring scenes in this movie. And it's it's a different kind of scarring in terms of, you know, I know we, as a horror podcast, you focus a lot on like the stuff that like scares you and gives you nightmares. This is more of like an introduction. It, this is like existential dread. It, my first existential dread. <laughs> like, mm. like, which is funny because for all these movies that like I've seen as a little kid that I probably shouldn't have seen, like all the R-rated stuff that I probably had no business watching, the stuff that messed with my head the most is the one that was actually geared towards children. Because, you know, we talk about the gate being like bringing up these very kind of adult themes and, and putting kids into dangerous situations. This is This is making you think about... It's it, like as a 30 year old or 37 year old, it's hard for me to put this into words, but it's, it's like I said, it's, it's this existential dread because it's talking about things like what it means to like exist and, um, uh, and what you, your ability to, the ability of the imagination to like make things real. You know, it, it was never a movie that gave me nightmares, but it's definitely one that, um, scarred me in different ways and i think first and foremost of course the scene with artax is the one yeah let's get this one out of the way because you know if if we're gonna cry let's do it now sorry terry you're gonna say something no i'm i'm just like i'm sighing because that was a scene that is like lived rent free in my head since i saw this i don't know how old i was when i saw this so I, I knew the moment that you, you said that this was the movie you wanted to talk about, I was like, well, there's two things in particular that jump out at me. And the one that really does is poor Artax. So let's, let's unpack that. So wh how did this, <laughs> how did this scene, what did it do to you? How, how did you react to this scene? I, I'm curious. It ruined me. Like it was yeah. it, just like ugly sobbing as a kid watching this movie and including repeat viewing. Cause I watched this movie a lot as a kid. And so mm. just like, I knew it was coming every time. And it was also kind of one of those weird things where it was like, it's that scab that you can't stop picking at. Like there's a fast forward button. I could have gone past it, but it's like part of, part of enjoying this movie and, and part of kind of like enjoy what's good about this movie is getting through like the really awful parts like this. And it's just, it's so effective because it's also not like, it's not cheap. Like it's so well done and it's so, it's kind of that scene where it's like, oh, this movie has some fucking stakes to it. Yeah. And it's um, <laughs> like, if nothing else, it introduces the idea that like, not only do horses have emotions, but they can give in to despair. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so it's just like, and I think part of what, what is also so effective about it is that uh, Noah Hathaway, the, the kid that plays Atreyu, absolutely kills the acting in this scene. Like, this yeah. kid goes through every stage of grief except for acceptance in this one scene. From that very second where, like, the camera is following him and he's pulling Artax along and just, like, there's that jolt where he stops and mm -hmm. he slowly turns his head back and he's like, he knows something's wrong, but he's not quite ready to, like accept what is actually wrong so like there's that you know that whole sequence where he's like oh i get it it's too hard for you and then he sees he's sinking and he just goes from like oh god like freaking out to um panicking to actually yelling at artax and also like not only is noah hathaway acting really well that horse is acting its ass off in this scene 
<laughs> no, it really is. And in fact, um, I was so curious about this scene as an adult that I went I, I went down like some Google search rabbit holes. And I found that there is a uh, behind the scenes making of documentary um, in German that's like uh, translate or it has like subtitles for English. It's on YouTube. And they spent seven weeks training this horse to stand on a hydraulic and allow the muck to go up to its face. Like they, and they showed some of the behind the scenes with like the trainer of trying to like get the horse to not shy away, get it to not whinny, get it to not react and just stand there as the hydraulic is lowering it into that gunk. So like seven weeks process just for this one scene. And it actually put the whole production behind because of that. But that horse, you're absolutely right. And I noticed it so much as an adult rewatching this, this time, where you see like when you see its teeth and you see it like just not moving while mm -hmm. it's pulling on it. And the horse has this terrified look in his eye like the horse is. I mean, unfortunately, I think it was probably like really literally terrified. Yeah, I mean, but, like it, it, I remember you all talking about phenomena and like the scene with the monkey where it's like freaking out. And, and like, I remember mm -hmm. talking about it like, you know, I'm sure the the uh, SPCA wasn't on set for that. That's exactly what I was thinking the last time I was watching this. Just like Ugh, that horse is clearly freaking out. Like it's not happy. No. <laughs> I hope it was well fed or well paid or, you know, however a horse is, is uh, whatever transaction happens for a horse in in uh in exchange for its acting services i hope it was it was well paid yeah me too <laughs> you know I, I was thinking back to this this scene because i was trying to remember what my reaction to this movie was like you it was it was part of my childhood i remember watching this movie a whole lot it, i when i was a kid if there was a movie that i loved i tended to like rewatch it over and over and over again and i know this one was one and i hadn't seen it since i was a kid but like the moment I sat down and I saw Bastion at, at the at the table trying to fiddle with this jar that he couldn't get open, I was like, oh, I remember this movie. Like, it brought me instantly back to being a kid and watching this. And the Artex scene is, is like I said, it's something that has lived rent-free in my, in my head because I believe – I believe this was the first time – my first real experience with, with death. I say that, but then, like, I used to watch, like, Star Wars, but, but like – a death that like isn't that has consequences. Yes, that has like stakes to it. It's not. It's not Ben Kenobi just like vanishing in his cloak because then at that point I don't see it as a death. Even though he died, I never really saw that as a kid. I never really put two and two together that oh he's dead now. He's just now like this invisible sort of like force that's talking to Luke. So like this scene was the first time there was like actual stakes attached to a death, and it it hurt. And it still hurts. Like I've seen this movie. I think at this point, it has to be at least 30 plus times, uh, just counting all the times I've seen it as a kid. And I watched it last night getting ready for this. And I'll be honest, I'm one of those people who like, you know, it, I know animal death is like a really big sticking point for a lot of people in horror movies. And I don't know if because I was, because <laughs> I was subjected to it so much as a kid, like I'm a little desensitized to it in a lot of other movies. I am too, unfortunately. Yeah. In, in this one, right back to being five years old and just like, oh God, like, like I could feel it welling up. And it was kind of one of those things where it was like, okay, like we're going to get, we're going to get past this. Like it's okay. You, you know, you know, the horse comes back. 
sort of, we'll get to that later, but like you, it's going to be okay. Like I had to kind of like calm myself down a little bit because I was, I was reverting back to like five or six year old Brian. So I do think we need to talk about the, the sort of elephant in the room or the other art. I don't, I was trying to make it. There is an elephant in the, in the one, in the one scene at the, uh, the ivory (laughs) tower. Um, (laughs) but Mary Beth, this was your first time watching this movie. And, I I've kind of gotten the feeling that you liked it, but aren't as much on board on it as maybe Brian and I would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm curious okay. what your experience was watching this as an adult. So, okay, to preface this and making excuses for myself, I had to go into work today. First world problems of someone who works from home, and I was very tired from interacting with the human race. <laughs> but I so I was watching it and my my boyfriend has seen it and he was watching it over my shoulder and he was like, Oh, I remember this part. And I was like, the Artax. And I'll I'll talk about this part. So I was like, I was waiting for the scene. I was like, Oh mm-hmm. my god, I know this is coming. It's gonna be so emotional. And then it happens really early in the movie, and I wasn't expecting that. I think I was a little thrown off by how early it happens. And I don't think I was as upset as i know a lot of people are but i was more kind of crushed by the fact that the horse gave up like is depressed and is like given into despair right horses get sad what the hell yeah horses (laughs) so that part was more like mentally jarring i just (sighs) i didn't dislike it i liked it I just think it was cheesier than I expected. So this is this is not a subtle movie by any stretch of the imagination. And I guess it's it's one of those things where like a lot of kids' movies aren't going to be terribly subtle, but it's definitely something I noticed on this last watch that it's I agree. The I, I didn't realize just how early the Artax scene happens in the movie. Um like there's not there's not a lot of interaction between Atreyu and his horse before the horse dies. And that was my thought, too. I was like, I thought there was going to be this, like, beautiful, like, character building between the two of them. And, like, they were going to get to know, like, we're going to get this, like, relationship between the boy and his horse. And then I think I just built it up in my head. <laughs> like, I haven't, like, having not seen it, I was like, oh, there's no, like, they have to be best friends. And then it happens. And I was like, uh, oh. And I think. <laughs> I didn't realize they were friends, like, so close. I think if you're watching this as a six-year-old. The couple of scenes that you get, like where they're by the creek and like Artax yeah. wakes them up and like they have lunch and like you kind of get that banter and, and that – well, not banter because he's talking to a horse that doesn't talk back. But um, it's – you get enough of that relationship that like for a kid, that tells you all you need to know about this. And I think there's a lot of that shorthand in this in terms of like you don't spend a lot of time with anybody other than – uh, Atreyu and with uh, with Bastion. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to separate to what degree I think that works anyway, just because it works and what degree I'm just remembering that as a six-year-old. And so it's just such a, it's so kind of permeated my being that like, yeah, of course this is how it all plays out. And uh, of course this happens like, this horrible horse death happens like 20 minutes into the movie before you even really get to see them interact all that much. I, I think it's one of those movies that like is counting on you like as a, this is a movie about imagination. So I think it's probably counting on these kids to like fill in a lot of the blanks. And so if it's something where mm-hmm. you're, you're seeing it and you're not getting that and you're, you're watching this with kind of a more, when you don't have the nostalgic goggles on, there's probably going to be something missing there. 
at least I can see that happening. Yeah. Also, Fal- Falcor freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I loved him as a kid. Watching it last night, he freaked me out a little bit, too. Like, the animatronics on that are so... It's Uncanny Valley to me, I think. I was texting Terry about this, and I was like, there is something about this movie that is so Uncanny Valley to me. Like, everything almost looks... Like, it's still a fantasy, obviously, Mm -hmm. but everything almost looks like it's supposed to be, like, a fantasy creature, but there's, like, very weird human... Like, his eyes and the way his voice, like... I think it's the eyes, because I was... It's the eyes! I was noticing this on this watch, because I was like, man, the eyes in, in in this movie are so well done. Like, Falcor's eyes have a have a lot of emotion to him and even even Gmork's eyes mm-hmm. when he's like when all you see is the green eyes they they look like they could be real eyes and so i think that when you put that with this larger than life puppet that i realized for the first time actually has scales Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I didn't realize this as a kid. I don't know if it's because, you know, you're watching like a beta or VHS copy. And so the, 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 you know, the quality isn't the greatest, but I was like, oh, he actually has scales and fur. I just thought he was like a, a just a flying dog <laughs> as a kid. So that's what I, th- I thought he was a flying dog. I always had the image that he was, I was telling this Steve, my partner, he, I was like, I thought the Falcor was a flying dog. I didn't realize he was actually a dragon. And Steve has read the book the, 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 before he saw the movie and he was telling me like all the discrepancies between the two oh yeah and he had like he was just like uh falcor is cute but like he's not the dragon i thought he was going to be and i was like tell me more (laughs) um but the other thing i wanted to say was something i texted terry was that especially in the first ivory tower scene where all those people humanoids are gathered together i said it looks like someone did acid looks at a hieronymus bosch painting and said let's do some fucking creature design <laughs> for the never-ending story like like those big giant heads oh the heads yes! were just they were far the out multi-face giant- people and, and then there was like this little kid in a weird like tinsely fairy costume that like stuck out to me behind a tray at one point and i was like what is going on here <laughs> i love it I want more of this because it was just so bizarre. And I think part of what I love about this, like I loved it as a kid. I think what I appreciate what they're doing is that they're kind of giving you like this slice of Fantasia life. Like they're not going to get too much into the mythology of these creatures, but they're just going to show you like this is a land where there's a lot of different beings. Like we're not just talking like it's not just anthropomorphic folks. Like there's (laughs) there's just big walking heads. Yeah. And like terry like you said like there's there's people with like the divided faces and there was one that had like it was like two faces morphed into one where there was three eyes and the center eye was like shared between the two faces it's so bizarre part of what i love about it like it's it's so off the wall but it's also presenting like it's not presenting these creatures as threatening like there's almost like a little bit of like a nightbreed-esque feeling to it where it's like mm. in another story like these could be monsters we're introduced to, you know, this little guy with a top hat, Deep Roy, you know, with his top hat and his I, racing snail. I, I screamed Deep Roy when he came on screen. I was like, oh, my God, I love Deep Roy. <laughs> Which, of course, they kind of ruin a little bit by dubbing his voice. But, you know, that's uh-huh. not to, you know, that's to be expected in 1984, I suppose. You know, you have this this rock biter, which is great, but also that'll be another scarring scene we'll talk about for later in the movie. And then there's like this guy in his bat. Oh, night hub in his snoozy bat. That's the exact kind of thing. Like I talked about that nightbreed feel. Like I feel like in any other movie that would be like the henchman bad guy. And yeah. here he's just like this goofy little guy who who uses a bat as a hang glider. 
What I loved about this opening scene and particularly watching it as an adult was that you have this idea of it, it presents it presents different characters from around the world of Fantasia because they all come from different corners and they've all come together and they have at during this scene and then throughout the rest of the movie have created their own little found family that is mm -hmm. because of this idea of shared trauma of this world. Their world is unraveling. Their homes are destroyed. They have nothing to go back to. And so they have found each other and they are completely opposite. You have a rock biter that's gnawing things. You have Nighthob and his snoozy bat and you have teeny weeny and his racing snail. Like they're, they shouldn't have anything in common. And and Rockbiter is initially presented as being kind of a scary thing. He's just rolling through on his like a scooter and <laughs> it's so cute. It's like but, so good. But they, they all get together and they form a little family unit. And that is our introduction to Fantasia. It's not through a Treyu. It's not through the hero story. It is through this little group of people that have come together because they have nowhere else to go. And that really hit me as an adult. <laughs> I really love that because I wasn't, I again, like didn't expect it. And I was like, oh, this is really sweet. Like, are we going to get some, again, I knew nothing about this movie. I don't know why I didn't see it as a kid. I think it freaked my mom out. And she was just like, no, you don't need to see it. <laughs> I don't know why. But I, I was like, oh, are these going to be cute little vignette, like cute vignettes about different parts of the world? Like I got it. I was like, this is such a sweet way to look at Fantasia. And then sad things happen later like immediately yeah <laughs> like immediately like and, and i think that's part of what i appreciate about it too like just from a uh, a storytelling perspective it's almost like kicking off a really it's it's almost like a really good and terry you'll appreciate this like a really good D, &D yeah. scenario where it's like oh my god yes how do we set up the kickoff to a campaign or an adventure that brings all these people together. And it's like, well, this is something, you know, they're, they're all kind of coming together because there's something that's threatening their entire world. And then you get like, you get to have all these disparate characters that you wouldn't normally group together. It's kind of one of those things that I, I look at a lot more now that I've been doing like role-playing games where like, you know, when you're making these games, like you keep having to come up with like, why are these people together? And so when I see that done well, in an actual movie or a book, it's like, I appreciate it that much more because I know how fucking hard it is. <laughs> so, so to, to have done that here is, is really cool. And, and to take that opportunity and lean into making these, these different creatures, like really leaning into making it elaborate and making them different. You know, I, I appreciate all the work that went into that. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier that, you know, this movie isn't exactly subtle, but I will say that there are moments in this that I think are incredibly well done in, in a subtle sort of way. For instance, I really like Morla, this giant turtle <laughs> that, that Atreyu climbs on the back of thinking it's a mountain and then it raises and then he falls. And I mean, you got to give it up for the kid, first of all, that he's constantly like being tossed off of trees mm -hmm. going through. But like, this isn't a very physical shoot for for this this poor kid but what i liked about morla is it, it kind of is a callback scene to his father and in the uh, bastion's father and in the opening scene where bastion is obviously not over his mom's death but his father's like yeah you know you just gotta buck up and and keep keep continuing on oh it's and like also this i'm going to drink this mixture of orange juice and raw eggs <laughs> Okay, thank you. I <laughs> thought I was going crazy. I was like, did he just crack a fucking egg into that blender? He two like, eggs I into was, that blender. Right? Okay, thank you. Because I was like, and then he drank it. And I was like, I, did I miss, am I, what? <laughs> I, I, I remember, like, 
the eighties had real weird ideas about like fitness and health. Uh-huh. And like, it, it, I think that kind of goes back to like, you know, Rocky drinking the raw eggs for the protein and stuff like that. But I'm just like, did you need to mix it with the orange juice? That is nauseating. I agree. <laughs> Sorry, Terry. That's neither here nor there. Can't give up on work as he drinks this nasty ass concoction and tells his son not to be sad about his mom dying. Like you're gonna have to give up on work when you get food poisoning from drinking raw eggs, Major Dad. I got I okay. I'm just the the dad. I that's the whole point. But I got so upset. This poor kid. His mom has died, and I'm assuming it was probably relatively recently. And he's like, "Mm, you didn't try it for the swim team. And like, I just don't understand why. Yeah, like you're not like achieving your full potential. Like the kid is like probably 10 or younger. (laughs) Walk off this trauma. (laughs) It's fine. But that was also like the prototypical father of the 80s. Like that was. Yeah, that's true. That is how that is how fatherhood was presented in the 80s. It was like, we can't show our emotions. We have to be stoic. We can't. We can't quote unquote coddle our, our sons. We have to just, you know, cheerio, go buck forward and go take on the day, regardless of how you are potentially dying inside. And that's what that's what I really liked about Morla, because Morla shows up and she becomes she he, I'm not quite sure, becomes a symbol of adulthood, cynicism, and apathy that is represented in the father. So you mm-hmm. have like Morla constantly saying, not that it matters, or actually we don't care, or we don't even care whether we care or not. Or yeah. like this and this this kind of disdain for youth where they literally say, We're allergic to youth. It's it's this this being that is presented as all knowing is presented as being the person that could potentially save the universe and save Atreyu, save Bastion, save everyone. And they couldn't give a shit about anything. But I also like, I think to that note, and I think this fits along kind of with, with what you're talking about in the end, Atreyu calls Borla on their bullshit by saying like, if you, really didn't care, you would just tell me. So you care, but there's something going on here. Like you don't know how to express your emotions and yeah. like, you know, they, they get called on it. So I think that fits kind of perfectly with what you're saying with this, you know, this, this dad, this eighties dad who is probably has all kinds of stuff going on inside himself that he has no capacity to handle because no one's taught him how to deal with his emotions. And now, unfortunately he's like trying to pass this, way of life onto his kid. And the line the line that that Morlis says that really just like really got me this time was the when Atreyu was saying that you know the nothing will kill them too and they're like well that at least would be something. <laughs> like they're so oh. they've given up so much on 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 anything that like the idea of of just like dying is like oh well that'd be something I guess. That is that is their reaction to all of it and it's 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 such a a subtle thing. It's such a subtle callback, but I do think it is a callback to, to the father because then we also get just a little bit later, Angiwook and Urgle, two <laughs> wonderful names of two people that represent the kind of pull that is happening for Bastion in the world where his father wants him to have, keep your head out of the clouds. You have to like focus on math, on the sciences and stuff. And that is with Inglewook where he's like, you know, I'm, I'm doing all these like scientific things and trying to study the world. And then you have his, his wife that <laughs> he keeps calling wench, <laughs> but she, <laughs> she is like the mysticism. She is the magic. She is that sort of like, she's making potions. She's taking all these different disparate like ingredients and concocting weird things to, to help, 
uh, Bastion and you have the two of them together and they don't really call it out, but it's basically science versus, you know, dreaming that kind of that, that kind of marriage between having your feet on the ground, but also maybe your head in the clouds for a little bit. And that's interesting, too, because it's, you know, obviously they it's contentious to a degree, but they've also clearly been married for a long time. Yeah. So it, it works. It's also just it's probably one of the sweetest segments of the movie, just watching these two little old people. Little, like, in the most literal sense of the word, because, like, these <laughs> creatures are, like, what? They come up to Atreus, like, waste or something like that. The use of forced perspective in this movie mm -hmm. is so is so good to, like, trick the imagination into thinking people are smaller than they are. It's so – or bigger than they are, for that matter. Also, just it. noticed for the first time watching it this time, Urgle is played by Patricia Hayes which is a connection to another one of my beloved 80s movies from a kid. Uh, she played Finn Rizal in Willow. <gasps> oh! Yeah. And I, I never put oh. two and two together as a kid, wow. but I was watching it this time. I'm like, I know that voice. I'm pretty sure that's Finn Rizal. And I looked it up and sure enough, yes, oh, that's, that is Finn that, Rizal. That's where I recognized her, the voice from. Mm -hmm. Okay. They also reminded me of... Well, one, Willow. Please, someone come talk about Willow, because I love Willow. I'll just stay on. We can just continue into Willow when we're done <laughs> cool. with this. Sweet. They kind of reminded me of the couple from The Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah. Um, a little bit. I was like, I need every fantasy movie to have a cute older couple that like kind of hate each other, but also really love each other. And it's very endearing. Like, I am like, this is a good trope. Can we continue to have this? This is very good. My biggest laugh of the movie is, is when uh, he he's so excited after Atreyu gets to the first gate, he comes down and he falls out of the, be the out of the bucket <laughs> and he goes to, to tell his wife, she's like, and she sees him all done. She's like, that's no reason to fall out of the basket again. I know. I know. As she's like standing on top of Falcor and giving him like, <laughs> Shot of vitamins. vaccinations. Like, <laughs> Juicy vitamins. I'm like, Ew. I love her. Oh my God. So, Thinking about them, I just had like a, an idea that po like something that popped into my head that I hadn't thought about. But this film feels very post-apocalyptic in a way that I was not expecting. Oh yeah, yeah. Obviously, the nothing is sweeping through and destroying and taking everything away. I didn't really think about the idea of the post-apocalypse in this way. You know what I mean? Like we always think of the post-apocalypse as like our society being gone, but this is a really interesting look at like a fantasy post-apocalypse, which again did not expect watching this movie, but it was really that was really harrowing. Yeah, the nothing is something that I think actually freaks me out more now than it did when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, as a kid, it's just like, uh, that's the big bad. But now kind of looking at it as this, one of the things that I found is really scary to me is this idea of the sublime, uh, which is, you know, a lot of people, when you think sublime, you think like ecstasy or something like that. And sublime, like in in some contexts, has a very different meaning. Uh, it's actually something brought up in, I think, Frankenstein, uh, where sublime is something that's so large and so vast that you kind of can't even comprehend it, kind of like getting into Lovecraftian thoughts. Mm -hmm. So it's like for me, like if I'm at the beach and I'm looking at the ocean, like my mind sometimes will go to like this could easily swallow us all. Like if something shifted the wrong way or like this is bigger than any of us will ever be. Turning that into 
the never ending story and just like this vast nothingness. Just it's like it's literally kind of like looking into the abyss is just so terrifying to me. And that's also as someone who is like agnostic leaning atheist who has mm. to like kind of reconcile that with like, okay, so what is gonna happen when I go? And so like one of the, the scary thoughts is like, what if it is just nothing? Like what if I'm here one second and just like gone? from the universe the next. So bringing that kind of baggage into this movie is something that makes the nothing a lot freakier to me now. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It made me think of depression too. Like yeah. being very depressed and the idea and like making me think about as a kid that like I didn't know what depression was, but I had that feeling. And that was pretty interest like hard to think about as i was watching it i was like oh god oh no and i mean i don't think i would have thought it was depression when i was younger but watching it now it's like everything like in my head you know when you're depressed everything kind of just disappears so that is what i saw it as as well well and i also think kind of going with that you know the idea of the nothingness and you see it tied to if you see it tied to this idea of depression or of nothingness, that is basically what both Bastion and his father are trying to stay away from, right? Because mm -hmm. this 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 grief of the mother is all-encompassing. The mother's death is all-encompassing. And you have – there are two different ways of trying to basically stay ahead of that thought and that, that idea. And so you have the, the adult who is basically trying to be apathetic toward it and just kind of carry on. And you have the son that is – drawing unicorns in his math book and is 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 moving into more fantasy realms to try to cope with that that depression basically so the idea that this kid is is falling into this fantasy world but then this fantasy world is also being enveloped by by depression and the thing that ends up saving the end of the day is him naming his mom and coming to terms <laughs> with his mom's death is is such a it's such a strong message in in like a kid's movie that's not i don't i i guess on my on the negative side i would say that i don't think it necessarily moves to that epiphany very well but it is there i think maybe it was it might have been stripped away because this this movie did get edited a whole bunch so i'm 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 wondering if there is something more to it that was released over in germany because i know steven spielberg did a, did the cut that is released here in the u.s like he edited it down and took out like seven minutes of, of movie from this too. And it's, it's interesting. You mentioned that Terry, because it's based off of a novel uh, of the same name uh, written yeah. by uh, M Michael Ende. I might be completely butchering his last name, but that's, that's how I'm going to say it. Cause that's the only way I can think to say it. But he was initially very excited that his book was going to get adapted. And it actually took a fairly small, like fee for it just because he was so thrilled about the idea. Uh, mm -hmm. And then apparently William Peterson, I wouldn't say went rogue, but basically like without Enday's knowledge, did some major rewrites to, to the screenplay that uh, Enday really didn't like. And he actually like wanted nothing to do with it. He sued to halt production. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Wow. Um, uh, and it's also interesting too, because uh, if you look at like what happens in the, in the book, this movie only covers like the first half and the the sequel uh that came out i think in like 92 is actually kind of a, a an adaptation of the second half of the novel and i think one of the things uh terry correct me if i'm wrong that that ende like really took issue with 
uh, is to kind of your point that there's no real, other than saying his mom's name, there's no real kind of active participation from Bastion's point up until that mm-hmm. last very second. And I think that's what he really took issue with, that mm. it's just kind of like this reveal at the end, and, and there's no active effort uh, from Bastion other than, you know, it's a very dramatic scene, but essentially all he's doing is yelling <laughs> yelling a name out into into the great beyond. You know, and I think Ende had more of an idea of the way he had it imagined. Uh, Bastion takes a lot more uh, of an active role in how this all comes together. Yeah, that's what my partner was telling me. And he was like, the ending of the book was better. (laughs) (laughs) And he was telling me about it. I'm like, I don't even think they could have smashed all that in there, though. Just like the legacy of Bastion and and all that stuff. But I will say something I really did enjoy is Bastion saying things like run run at his book because it was so it was so relevant to how i used to read books as a kid and like yes yelling at the pages and being like an active participant in the story i think like you said there is a interesting disconnect between that aspect and then him actually becoming like an active participant in the world of fantasia like that's a little bit jarring but i really loved like the representations of a kid reading a book and just like getting sucked into it and that made me just took me back to when I like, cause I love to read and I was like a voracious reader as a kid. And so those moments were really, I think, special. My favorite part actually with going along with this is actually when Bastion, the school is out, the bell is rung. He's collecting his things and he's r- going to run down the stairs and then he stops and he's like, no, I gotta, I gotta continue this. And that is like, Yes. That is the way it felt like when you're a kid reading, if you got sucked into a book and you're like, I got to I got to see this through to the end because these characters are counting on me. You know, I've left them in such a predicament. And if I don't keep reading, then the story is not going to continue. And it makes you sort of feel like an active participant in Mm -hmm. the actual art of reading a book. And I thought this movie for all of the like iffy maybe plotting points especially towards the end that was something that it captured perfectly for me it definitely did also i want a school with an attic like that oh i know right (laughs) what the fuck it's like what my public school did not have that because if it did i would never have gone to class with the key just in like this broken box that anyone can get to i i was like i don't know what school this is but i i dig it (laughs) (laughs) it just grabs them out of a broken glass thing and runs into the attic continuing on with this this I, this book thing the other the other scene that like really got me thinking this time was early on in the movie but it was with the shopkeep where they're t- he's having a conversation with bastion about the books that he's reading and bastion's mm-hmm. talking about you know that he he has 180 some odd books and and the shopkeep says, well, your books are safe. While you're reading them, you get to be Tarzan or Robertson Crusoe, but afterwards you get to be a little boy again. And I got to thinking about this idea of like those books that are that, or, you know, any media, I mean, this podcast is kind of about, you know, that media that we saw maybe too young or whatever, that just like either broke our brain or made us think about things differently. And I thought about that with, with these books in particular, the book that, you know, the kid reads that ends up helping him work through his trauma of losing his mom, that there are books out there that are quote unquote dangerous. The ones that will change how you see or experience the world. And it fundamentally mm-hmm. changes you. And I'm curious if you guys ever had books like that growing up that you, that you remember reading and just remembering that this was that book. Yeah. Mine was the green mile mm. by Stephen King. 
And I always come back to that one because that was the first book I've read and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed after reading it. Like I love to read and I had like, you know, strong connections to the books I read, but I never cried like this before after reading a book. And I don't think I had ever read something that was so beautiful and had really gotten me to the core about what it means to be a person and for like I don't know it, something about it just hit me in a way that I had never been hit before by the written word and it it changed the way I read books I think for sure and like expect like the emotional expectations with books and my emotional relationship to books in a good way um and really understanding like the kinds of feelings novels can really draw out of you they read it too young too but that's fine. <laughs> and I guess this is where I have to admit that like I don't have the same relationship with books as I do with like movies and TV uh and and kind of visual media. I definitely read, but I don't have that connection with books. Mm-hmm. I can't point to a book and say like this is something that changed the way I, I view things. It's more like moments in in TV and, and media and, and things that have kind of like ruined me in in various ways uh that you know that's the media that that has the power for me to do that um mm-hmm. and i think the the moment that last did that for me uh wasn't uh horror by any stretch of the imagination it was actually in the first season of uh pose when mm. billy porter's character pray tell is you know this is a lot of this movie is about the age uh, you know uh, epidemic or pandemic in uh you know mid 80s uh, New York and he's just got this scene where he's got to say he's basically saying goodbye to his boyfriend in this god awful i think like Bronx hospital room and it's one of those things where it's like these are the kinds of things like I've I've read about the conditions back then uh, I've read about how many people died but for me to see that play out between these two people that I've been following and and grown an attachment to, it's probably the hardest I've cried in like 10 years. I'm getting emotional just thinking about that scene. <laughs> it is a very difficult scene to watch. And it's, but it's also like you realize that you're watching stuff like this for those scenes to make those connections that you've maybe made mentally, but haven't felt them in any kind of substantial way. You know, and I think that's what movies do for me. Like, it's it's hard for me to get there in a book, but in movies and TV, like, it's a lot easier for me to immerse myself in a way where I feel it in ways that I might not feel in a book. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, for me, and I've I've mentioned this um this character's death on this podcast before, but there there was I, I was a huge fantasy uh novel reader when I was a kid, and there was one series called the Dragonlance Chronicles, and there it was originally a set of three books, and there's a character, his name was Flint, and he was a dwarf, and he you you get this sort of like it, they kind of get together and you this this group in a way that kind of feels similar to like uh, the never-ending story, and you follow them on their journeys. And in the third book of this original trilogy, Flint ends up dying, but he ends up dying because of a heart attack. It's not like Jesus. it's not because he dies in like you know the great thrall of battle or whatever you know defending the world. He 
has literally gotten so old and he, you see throughout the books that he's getting older because he's he's started out the books as an old dwarf and so in that book when he just sort of like gives out because his heart has given up that i remember throwing that book across the room and it was like six months before i would pick it up again to like read it because i was so upset and i didn't want to believe that it was possible hmm. god yeah <laughs> what the fuck what the fuck were we reading and doing as children <laughs> i know right like we were not okay like think, i'm like just thinking about the things i've read and i was like what the hell like i just continuously traumatizing myself and i don't regret it but it's just funny looking back it's like my my mom was like oh well you you you're pretty advanced for your age for reading so like you know do whatever you want and i was like oh no <laughs> oh, oh no, no. <laughs> oh no even oh, i know this is a bad idea i know it's like hmm probably not a good call but here we go and I don't regret it. It's just funny to look look back on and think about. To to bring it back to the movie, though, particularly with this idea of failure, I, and I think you had brought this, you had mentioned this earlier that we'd get to. It, so I want to make sure that we talked about it, Brian. But Rockbiter, <laughs> <laughs> they look like big, strong hands, don't they? <sighs> oh my god. Okay, I'm gonna I'm, like I keep feeling like I'm gonna cry talking about this. So obviously, this movie had an impact on me <laughs> as we keep talking about it because I'm like getting very emotional. I am too. <laughs> That moment where it's like, but he also is a stand in for he's sort of the father figure of this group. He's the big he's the big guy. He's the protector. He's the one that is like larger than the rest of these almost kid size like Mm -hmm. people, the the hob or the hot night hob and and teeny weeny and stuff. And that thing, like you were saying, Brian, where they look like big, strong, big, good, strong hands, don't they? And then talking about how the nothing pulled them right out of his hands and he failed. It brought me back to like the father and this sort of like idea of what, of what the father figure or your parental units are supposed to be for your family, where they're supposed to keep you safe and they failed. And I thought about that with this statement and I never really saw it as a kid, but as an adult, it like really hit me hard last night. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of a double whammy too, because it's, you're imagining what that failure must be like for the people who were counting on him for protection. Yeah. And then you're also seeing his own, like him, the ramifications of him dealing with his own failure. It's just the saddest goddamn thing. Like he's just like, <laughs> it really is like, it's yeah, so he's sad. this father figure and it's like, what happens where like, <laughs> and again, it's, it's introducing these concepts that are, so deep for kids like we're talking about you know the death of your parents but we're also talking about like the fallibility of your parents like Mm. your parents aren't perfect and they are going to fail you in certain ways Mm. and how do you deal with that you know and that that kind of realization is jarring not just for the people who have been failed but for the people the person who has failed them yeah so it's it's bringing up some really heavy stuff Right now, I'm just thinking about, like, thinking about as a kid, the way your parents... Oh, my God. Woo! Okay. <laughs> Are we going to actually get Mary Beth to, like, openly sob on this episode? That's... <laughs> it's getting closer and closer. Close. So, like, if you want me to start talking about my my familial problems, just kidding, no one wants that. <laughs> but it is just, like, you think about it as when you're a kid and when you rely on adults to protect you, even when like you're a teenager and the ways that they can't protect you and how you feel betrayed by that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they are they're not infallible human beings who can't. Oh, okay. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I'm 37 years old and I'm still navigating how to handle that. You know, and I say yeah. that as someone who, for the most part, like 
I got real lucky in in my parents. You know, they're uh, and they the the uh, the fatal fuck ups that they've made are the ones that like I think most parents have made. Um, but it's also like it's how do you uh, try to articulate this? Like, how do you navigate? acknowledging and taking seriously the ways in which they failed you while also accepting them for what they still are. Yeah. Oh God. It's, it's not easy. It's, you know, it's always something that I'm like maybe figuring out in my late thirties, but it's, yeah, you still get tripped up. So I, I really like the ending of this, of this movie from a like meta textual standpoint where, you know, the, the childlike princess is telling our Atreyu, you know, that he, he being Bastion has suffered with you. He went through everything that you went through and that it kind of ties back into that, the, the kind of magicalness of reading and experiencing other people's stories through reading, because it's like, yeah, you know, these characters went through a lot of trauma, but so did you by reading through it and you survived it. Mm-hmm. And it brings back to that moment where Urgul says it has, it has to hurt if it's to heal. And- oh, mm-hmm. there are tears coming down my face and i have never cried during an episode and this movie that i said i didn't know if i liked i'm like openly crying (laughs) but i also think about the the so there's that and i think that that is an important aspect of the story because bastion has to hurt atreyu has to hurt has to go through that in order to come out on the other side a changed person and that is that is the progress of, of rebirth that's the progress of you know being that the the idea of the the caterpillar turning into a butterfly it's that it's that kind of metaphor that you know you have to go through pain if that wound is ever going to heal but then there's also the side of of creation and the the creation of stories. And that was the other part of descending, kind of taking it out of this, the sad thing into a happy thing where it's like the very, I'll ruin that for you too, by the way, but go on. (laughs) by the end of the story. So, uh, all of Fantasia, Fantasia is gone except for a single grain that, that she's holding in her hands and it's dark. And she says the story, you know, in the beginning, it always is dark. And it's that idea of, you could take that in religious ways of like, you know, you know, let God sell it to be light. But the way I was looking at it more so was this idea of shared stories and telling stories where there's a kernel. There's like this little spark of an idea and it, you might not know what it is, but it's right there. And then by giving that on to someone and sharing the art of storytelling, you end up continuing the story in different ways. And it ends up being that never ending story because we're all telling a story together. And that's what really got me at the end of this movie. <laughs> yeah, like you're... I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to leave. Uh, all right. So, like, I might as well, like, we're already kind of, like, bummed out. I might as well kind of take it home here. But to give you an idea on, like, how weirdly I interpreted things as a kid... One of the things about the ending of this movie that always kind of gnawed on me is that, you know, it's this idea of like, you know, your imagination can bring Fantasia back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he he basically kind of recreates Fantasia with his own imagination. There was always that part of my – that voice in the back of my head that was saying like, okay, but is this like for real Fantasia or is this just what Bastion is able to kind of like – duplicate with his own mind it's kind of going to that idea of like 
they, they talk about like if you replace every part of a car with a, a new part, is it that same car any, every, anymore? Mm. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> and, and, like, and it's one of those things where, like, I'm looking back, I'm like, damn, six-year-old Brian, like, are you okay? Like, <laughs> why is your mind going here? Because I'm like, and I think part of it is the way they filmed it. There's a little bit of an emptiness to it or, like, a, a shallowness to he's recreated it, but he's just seeing it at, like, the 10,000-foot view from on top of Falcor. Mm. And, like, mm. he's waving at these characters. But, like, it's almost like that's the – that's as good as he could get the recreation. Like, he almost, like – he never has a one-on-one with Atreyu. Like, this is a person he has been on this adventure with the entire time, and they never actually meet face-to-face. He, like, waves up at him from, like, you know, 500 feet in the air or whatever. Is that just, like, Bastion's, like, best attempt at a carbon copy of Atreyu? And it's mm. just, like, that's wow. something that, like, has evolved over the years where that's still something I th- I think I, I – I don't want to say navigate with it, but it's something that's more interesting than, like, bumming me out as an adult because it's another one of those things that like I do really like stories about like what is reality and what is identity um you know I I think about that like that car problem like is it the same car is it not and what does that mean for us because like most of our cells are like what makes up our body parts aren't the same parts that they were when we were kids so is it just uh, yeah. kind of like what's in our mind and if that's the case like to what degree are we manifesting reality just with our mind? So it's 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 turned into something that's not as freaky as it is interesting. But I think there's also a little bit of like I'm probably freaked out um, as an adult. <laughs> so all See, that to say, like I had a real that, weird take on on the ending of this movie as a kid. I mean, for I, I, I get that. I that is a lot of ex- existential dread to have as a kid. I, you know, I was thinking, I don't remember this ending as, as, as a kid. I, I, this rewatching this, this time, I remember her holding out her hands and like holding that, that, you know, that grain of sand. But like, I don't remember this ending at all, except for when Falcor rushes down and scares the, the bullies, which I loved as a kid. I, I, yeah, I just, I, I love the idea of, keeping the story going and that's and so that is how i'm going to take this ending not as sort of like a depressing little little ending but for me it's more of about like okay you've seen this movie you've read this the story might be over but now it's time for you to go and create your own stories Mm -hmm. that's how i'm going to view it because that everything makes me sad (laughs) (laughs) 100 percent. please look at it that way because i i don't recommend looking at it the way i looked at it wow are you okay mary beth uh-huh. <laughs> wow. Want to give this a rating out of five? Yeah. <laughs> Who knew that this kid's movie would be the one that reduces your co-host to to tears a little bit? Look, I have a lot of trauma. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, on that note. <laughs> let's give it a depressing score out of yeah, five. Yeah, um, so let's give it a depressing rating out of five. Terry, how many drowning horses? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, okay, I don't think this is a perfect movie. I think that, you know, there I, I don't know how you would have made I I went to look at gosh, I don't even know where to start with this. I went to go look at the Wikipedia summary of the book and I was like, wow, there is a lot going on in that book. And I don't know how they would turn it that into a movie. And so mm-hmm. 
I think this is an imperfect adaptation in a way, but I also think that there's a lot in here that um, either we don't really think about or that is maybe not connected enough that we're going to really look at see unless we are actively looking at it. So I don't think it is a hundred percent successful with it, what it wants to do. However, this idea of trying to instill in kids that sort of creativity. And yes, you can have your head in the clouds. Yes, you can be creative. Yes, you can go out there and not have to worry about math and science and stuff. You can draw unicorns if that's what makes you want to, if that make is that, if that is what helps you get through sadness, go out there, create, make something. I think that is a great message for kids. And I, I I really like this movie. I hadn't seen it in like, gosh, maybe 30, 30 years or so. I don't, I don't know when I last saw it, but it was probably in the eighties. <laughs> so I, I have nostalgia for this movie, but I also think it's a, I think, I honestly think it's a damn good movie and I love its recreation of what it feels like to actually be a kid pulling up a book and feeling so invested in the characters that you don't want to put it down because you need their story to end and see it to its conclusion. So from that, I'm going to give it four poor drowning R taxes out of five for me. What about you, Mary Beth? Um, well, I'm reassessing my evaluation now because now I fucking cried on the podcast. <laughs> um, Join the club. Great. Um, so I was going to initially give it three, but now I'm going to give it three and a half. Sorry, Artax. Um, <laughs> I think that this is a beautifully done movie. I think it's really fucking weird, but in a good <laughs> way. I think some of it doesn't really land for me. I think the ending with the childlike empress is a little bit cheesy and exposition dumpy. But regardless of that, I think this is a really beautiful movie about fantasy, but also about books and what books mean to kids, especially lonely kids who need an escape. And so I'm going to give it three and a half. There you go. So Brian, you have the final word. How many drowning horses out of five do you give the never ending story? Uh, like I almost don't want to give it a good grade. Cause I don't know if I want to like drown multiple horses. <laughs> uh, I get... We should have done like a reverse scale. <laughs> like, <laughs> zero means you love it. And our text actually lives. <laughs> uh, but uh, since we're, we're leaning into this, I, I'm drowning four and a half horses. Um, there you go. Okay. The, the seams showed a little bit more for me. Uh, this this last viewing. Mm -hmm. It's also one of those movies that like I I think I also love because of its flaws. It's it's a messy movie. It's a weird mm -hmm. movie, but it's also a very bittersweet and beautiful movie. The fact that it was able to take me back to to the feelings that I had when I was six or seven years old. Like there's not a lot that can still do that. Uh, so for that alone, I have to give it a, a good score. So yeah, I'm going to go four and a half. You also just cut that horse in half. That's just, well, we can uh, maybe put our halves together. Yeah, he'll be, he'll be fine. And then we'll drown that <laughs> <Okay>. whole horse. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Artex. <laughs> Take us home, Mary Beth. What? Oh, that's me. No, that's you. God damn it. <laughs> No, <laughs> not. Wow. I, in my mind, I had already said all of this stuff. I was just like, I was waiting for you. So you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. Nope. Okay. Um, you scared me. I was like, uh oh, did I fuck up? Oh, uh, jeez. Nope. It's just me lost in the clouds. Need to get my feet on the ground and continue forward. Um. So anyway, 
Uh, thank you so much for Brian for traumatizing us and making us cry while we talk about the never-ending story. Where can our listeners? I'm not sure if I should like be ashamed or proud of that. <laughs> Maybe a little bit I of both. Think it's, I think it's I wild think that <laughs> we are like. I don't know. At this point, by the time this comes out, maybe 80 episodes in, and this is the first time that that has happened. So that's, I think you should hold that as a as a as a badge of honor that we we're talking about the never ending story and getting us so fucking emotional. So we can just thank you. Just give us a chance Turn to feel. Turn around. <laughs> Look at what you see. It's the never ending story. <laughs> Apparently, what we're seeing is a bunch of people weeping. <laughs> CC. Mary Beth and Terry on the floor crying about being children. Uh, hello, darkness, my only friend. Right? Isn't that how that goes? Hello, darkness, my old friend. Old friend, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> thank you again, Brian. Where can our listeners find you? And what do you have that you'd like to uh, to plug? Oh, uh, so I'm a little bit everywhere. Uh, I kind of like to uh, pop my head up in a few different places. So I've got uh, Daily Dead. Um, uh, I'm on their podcast, Corpse Club. Um, I also do some writing for Roomwork. Uh, I'm the short horror editor uh, for the website. Uh, and I also do a column for the magazine called Shadowlit, uh, which is uh, pretty cool. It kind of gets into some of the real life inspirations for kind of some of our favorite different uh, horror and genre movies. Um and uh, I also do some uh, – I've just started doing some reviews and some different columns for uh, cinepunks.com. Uh, so uh, basically, if you want to keep up with all of that, uh, I'm on Twitter way too much. Uh, we already talked about my dumbass screen name, which is uh, at Evil Taylor Hicks. <laughs> um, at Evil Paul Hollywood. Yeah, yeah that'll, be my, that'll be my backup. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, pretty much anything, like if you want to follow anything that I have coming out, uh, I'm way too active on there. So odds are you'll, you'll probably be able to find it there. Aren't we all too active on Twitter? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with the never ending story? And did it reduce you to tears <laughs> at, at an, an adult age on a podcast? <laughs> um <laughs> I want to hear that very specific experience. You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. What? Stop fucking laughing at me. I'm, sorry. I'm not laughing at you. I just think it's like, you know, you, you get that, that emotional break and then all the, everything is like giggles That's afterwards. True. And I'm at that part. I apologize. No, honestly, I understand. Glad you feel better, Terry. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, man. I'm at Gaily Dreadful. All right. And of course, make sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review and subscribe. I think our tears earned at least Blood, that sweat, and tears, today. motherfuckers. Blood, sweat, and there tears. Um, thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you to everyone for listening and witnessing uh, a mental breakdown over a podcast. <laughs> stay safe out there. Try to stay sane. And also stay creepy. <laughs> and until next time.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.